You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 131, the Continental Congress, Baltimore edition. Over the last few weeks, we've covered some of the most pivotal events of the Revolution. The massive British Army under General Howe invaded New York and New Jersey, sending the Continental Army fleeing before it. The Continental Army then countered to retake New Jersey. And last week, we looked at events in the South over the same period as Tories in Florida with their Creek and Seminole allies, seem to have no trouble pushing into Patriot-controlled Georgia. Today, I want to talk about what the Continental Congress was doing as all these events unfolded. As the British Army pushed toward Philadelphia in December 1776, the Continental Army was not able to mount much of any defense. Many on both sides assumed that the British would take Philadelphia before ending the year's offensive. Members of Congress, not eager to become prisoners of war, decided to leave Philadelphia. On December 12th, the Congress voted to adjourn and reconvene in Baltimore, Maryland the following week. In Baltimore, locals first offered Congress the courthouse, but it was too small. Instead, Congress rented the Henry Fight House, which actually was a hotel and tavern on the western edge of town. The three-story, 14-room brick building had several rooms large enough for committee meetings. At the time, it was the largest building in Baltimore. Congress rented the building from fight for three months for 60 pounds sterling. Overall, members were not happy with Baltimore. It was not the charming city that exists today. As one member put it, the town was exceedingly expensive and exceedingly dirty that at times members could make their way to the assembly hall only on horseback through the deep mud. In his diary, John Adams called it the dirtiest place in the world. There was also a 107-year wait for Orioles tickets. Putting aside the conditions in Baltimore, Congress got to work. Remember, mid-December was the low point of the Patriot movement. Everyone expected the British to take Philadelphia. The Continental Army might be captured in the process, and if not, officers and soldiers were already deserting what they saw as a lost cause. Congress had been reluctant to turn over much power to General Washington and the rest of the military leadership for fear of losing civilian control of the army. Since there was no executive branch, Congress itself had to act as a Department of War trying to run everything through committees. With the current chaos of events, Congress voted on December 27th to give General Washington special powers for six months to raise his own army from the states 
appoint officers, and take appropriate action against uncooperative civilians. This was the day after Washington's victory at Trenton, but the timing was purely coincidental. It's not clear whether word of the victory had even reached Congress by the time of the vote. The matter had been under debate for several days prior. So this was not about handing out power to a victorious general. It was about Congress effectively admitting that it was not capable of making the necessary executive decisions that had to be made decisively and quickly by a commander-in-chief. Congress placed a six-month time limit on the powers to make sure that Washington did not become a dictator. With the army on the verge of collapse and the only serious replacement for Washington, General Charles Lee, now a British prisoner, Congress decided it had to go all in, depending on Washington to run the army as he best saw fit. Congress expressed concern about some recent prisoners as well. It directed Washington to investigate and protest General Howe's treatment of Richard Stockton, whose capture I discussed back in episode 118. Treatment of a captured member of the Continental Congress was an issue near and dear to the hearts of the rest of the members. Congress also denounced British treatment of Charles Lee. When initially captured, there were rumors that Lee was going to be shipped back to England and hanged as a deserter or traitor. Congress affirmed Washington's position that if the British hanged an American general, the Americans would hang a British officer of the same rank. By the time Congress passed this resolution, though, the British were already treating Lee quite well. They allowed Lee to send for his dogs and his servants. General Howe met personally with Lee during this time. Howe eventually got Lee to send a letter to Congress asking them to send a delegation to New York to discuss peace terms. By mid-February, though, it appeared that the Americans were back on the offensive, and Congress rejected Lee's proposal. Congress was not ready to consider any peace proposal if Britain did not recognize American independence, and that position required military victory. Washington's minor victories in New Jersey had been a huge boost for morale, but they did not really change the thinking on either side that Britain would eventually crush the rebellion unless the Americans could get a few more countries involved. I mentioned back in episode 115 that Congress had appointed Benjamin Franklin and Arthur Lee to work as commissioners along with Silas Dean in France. They needed to pull France into the war with Britain. Congress, however, did not want to rely on France alone. Franklin had only arrived in France in late December. Before Franklin could do much of anything, let alone get any reports back to Congress, the delegates added to Franklin's duties by appointing him to serve as a commissioner to the court of Spain. Both France and Spain had lost colonies to Britain during the Seven Years' War. Congress hoped that both countries might find this an opportune time to reclaim lost real estate while Britain was tied up with America. Entry of any other European power into the war against Britain would force London to spread its resources more thinly and give America a better chance of holding on to its independence. I'm going to get into Franklin's exploits in Paris in a future episode, but for now I want to point out that Congress was already expanding his role and attempting to get whatever European powers into a war 
that would improve American odds of winning. Congress also was not convinced that anyone could convince France to start a new war with Britain. If they could not get France into the war, Congress at least hoped to receive more covert assistance in the form of munitions and other supplies needed to help with the war effort. As if there was not enough going on, political leaders in the New Hampshire grants met in a convention in the town of Westminster. They drafted their own Declaration of Independence, calling themselves the Republic of New Connecticut. A few months later, they would change the name to Vermont. The Declaration was especially controversial because New York still considered this territory to be part of New York. Anxious not to annoy the New York delegation, Congress opted to ignore this declaration entirely, not approving or criticizing it. It would not receive a delegation from the self-proclaimed republic, nor do anything else to recognize its status. The people of Vermont would have to wait more than a decade to get any recognition. For this reason, I'm only mentioning this in passing for now. I will talk more about the politics of Vermont independence in a future episode. A much more immediate problem for Congress was money. Congress had been pumping out millions of dollars in paper money, which were essentially promises that the bearer someday would receive hard currency. But especially when it looked like the British might win, no one wanted to accept the continental currency since a British victory meant there would be nobody around to make good on that paper. Even when the Americans looked like they had a chance of victory, though, continental paper continually suffered from hyperinflation. Congress had no plan in place to receive any hard money, that is gold and silver, to pay off the paper. States would not give it power to collect taxes. It could only get anything from the states if the states unanimously agreed to such a plan, and Congress never seemed capable of getting them to do that. On January 14th, Congress passed some recommendations for states to come up with tax money. But for a people fighting a war over a foreign government trying to collect taxes from the states, there was a strong inclination for many states to oppose this. Anyone ever getting anything of value in exchange for their paper currency continued to look like quite a gamble. Congress's only response to this was to order people to accept the money at face value in exchange for their goods. The only time this really worked was when soldiers pointed their guns at merchants and ordered them to turn over their goods in exchange for paper or go to jail. As a result, few people were willing to supply the government with much of anything. During this session, Congress approved borrowing another $13 million through the sale of loan certificates. It increased the interest rates from 4% to 6%, but even with these changes, the risks were too high for most speculators. In December and January, New England leaders met at a conference in Providence, Rhode Island, to discuss the growing problems of government credit and currency acceptance. Although, over in Britain, Adam Smith had just published his new book, The Wealth of Nations, no one in America seemed interested in the invisible hand of the market. Instead, delegates recommended the establishment of mandatory prices on a wide range of commonly needed goods 
and forcing merchants to accept paper money at those prices. The Continental Congress endorsed the New England Conference's recommendations and also recommended that the Middle and Southern states hold similar conferences. This, of course, only continued to devalue the continental dollar and created even more economic chaos across the continent. But, to be fair, Congress really had no choice. It had no power to raise money through taxes and little chance of obtaining that power in the foreseeable future. States would not come up with the necessary funds to prosecute the war. As a result, delegates saw no option other than to continue to print paper money and force people to accept it in exchange for goods and services. So, in addition to building a diplomatic corps and creating a new economic system out of nothing, Congress also spent considerable time running military affairs. Although they had just given Washington a great deal of authority over such things, Congress could not help but meddle in disputes that came to its attention. Congress had appointed John Morgan as physician-in-chief of the Army back in October 1775. This was right after it removed Benjamin Church on suspicion of espionage. Dr. Morgan had been a Quaker physician in Philadelphia before the war, but had served in the French and Indian War and left his Quaker upbringing behind many years before the Revolution started. He became a committed patriot and, by most accounts, served reasonably well as physician-in-chief for well over a year. The big complaint against him was that he was unable to make medical supplies available to regimental surgeons. But the problem there was not administrative competence. It was that the Continental Army had no supplies and no money to buy them. Dr. William Shippen, also from Philadelphia, and Dr. Samuel Stringer of Albany, both tried to undermine Morgan and have him replaced. In the fall of 1776, Congress had decided to divide medical authority, limiting Morgan's authority to New England, and giving Shippen administrative control over the Mid-Atlantic region, where the Continental Army was now centered. Stringer was put in charge of the Northern Army medical staff, and he simply refused to obey any of Morgan's orders. Morgan visited Congress in an attempt to figure out why they had done this, but could not get a hearing. Finally, in January 1777, Congress decided it had had enough. Without consulting Washington and without any hearings, Congress simply dismissed Morgan and Stringer from the Army and put Shippen in charge of everything. Morgan, unhappy with his dismissal and unable to get a hearing, published a book over 200 pages long trying to vindicate himself and his reputation. And if you're interested in reading the details of this crisis by reading that full book, it is available as a free ebook, and there's a link to it on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Dr. Morgan made it a goal in life to take down Shippen. In late 1778, Morgan, working with Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was also a member of Congress and also a Philadelphia physician, had Shippen brought up on charges of fraud and speculation. Among other things, they accused Shippen of speculating in the sale of goods needed by the wounded and personally profiting from their sale. Shippen avoided conviction by one vote and continued to serve until he resigned in 1781. 
Congress later exonerated Morgan of any wrongdoing, but it also did not reinstate him. His army career was over for good. Congress also made another important medical decision during this session. It recommended that all Continental soldiers receive smallpox inoculations. Now, this was a controversial decision. A safe vaccination for smallpox would not be discovered until many years after the war. The inoculation as it existed at this time often left the soldiers sick with a mild version of smallpox for several months, rendering them incapable of fighting or marching. It actually also killed a very small percentage of those inoculated. For these reasons, Washington had at one point banned inoculations and even jailed some private doctors who were inoculating soldiers. At the same time, though, smallpox could ravage armies. It had killed thousands of soldiers, especially in the Northern Army during the Quebec Campaign, where I really think it was decisive in the failure to secure Canada for the Patriots. Smallpox had already claimed the life of Major General John Thomas, as well as the Army's first foreign general, Frederick Wilhelm Baron von Wuttke, both of whom had succumbed to the disease months earlier. Adams called smallpox ten times more terrible than the Britons, Canadians, and Indians together. The decision to inoculate soldiers, with which Washington had also come to agree, would end up saving thousands of desperately needed soldiers' lives. Congress also created a Commissary General of American Prisoners, whose job would be to provide necessities for the American POWs that the British were holding in New York. As I mentioned back in episode 129, the thousands of prisoners, who were mostly captured in the New York campaign and surrender at Fort Washington, were literally starving to death aboard prison ships and in prisons. After Congress approved the petition, Washington appointed Elias Boudinot to serve as Commissary General, and I will discuss his activities in more detail in a future episode. Congress also took the opportunity to use this session to appoint more generals. As I said, Congress had granted Washington authority to commission field officers, but Congress retained for itself the authority to commission new general officers. Early in this session, it appointed Henry Knox as the new general and chief of artillery. It also appointed Francis Nash, general, to assist with the organization and defense of the Carolinas. Toward the end of the session, Congress decided to make some larger promotion decisions. On February 19th, it promoted five men to major general. William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling, Thomas Mifflin, Arthur Sinclair, Adam Stephen, and Benjamin Lincoln. Two days later, it promoted nine others to Brigadier General. Now, all promotions can be controversial in the sense of who gets it and who doesn't, but these appointments had a particular impact on one man, Benedict Arnold. General Arnold had seniority over all five of the appointees to Major General. Arnold was already ticked that he had not received promotion in an earlier round back in August 1776. But at least in that round, all those who did get promoted were senior to him, even if their service was not particularly distinguished. 
Arnold, who had almost single-handedly held off the British invasion from Canada that fall, and who was one of the most senior brigadier generals in service, seemed a lock for promotion in this round. When you get passed over for officers with less seniority, that's usually taken that the leadership does not respect you and that you should probably resign. Arnold wrote to Washington inquiring about this and indicated that he was probably going to resign. He only held off because Washington said there must have been some mistake and that he should wait until Washington could make inquiries into what had happened. As it turned out, there was no mistake. Congress had considered and rejected Arnold. The main reason given was that Congress already had two major generals from Connecticut, and before this, no state had three major generals. Of course, it didn't seem to bother anyone that Virginia got its third major general in this round, in addition to the commander-in-chief. General Adam Stephen of Virginia, who just got bumped up, was particularly undistinguished and someone who General Washington despised. The reality was that despite Arnold's impressive fighting record, he did not have friends in Congress to advocate for him. The members knew he had a record of fighting with his superiors and with the officers under his command. Arnold wrote out several resignations, but ended up remaining at his post, mostly because Washington pleaded with him to do so and promised to work things out. Arnold wrote back to Washington to say that he could interpret this action in no way other than Congress had lost faith in him as a leader and that it was politely asking Arnold to resign. The only things that kept him from doing so immediately was that he expected Congress to send another leader to take over his command and his desire to go to Philadelphia and seek a court-martial prior to resigning. With that, he would have the opportunity to hear the criticisms against him and defend his reputation before he submitted his resignation. This dispute would linger for a few months, but in May, following Arnold's noted leadership at the Danbury Raid, which I will discuss in a future episode, Congress did finally decide to give him the promotion. However, going from the most senior brigadier general to the most junior major general meant that the promotion changed nothing in terms of who could give him orders and whom he could order. The same five men who had been promoted over him were still his senior as major generals. So Arnold's grudge against Congress for being denied proper respect for his services would continue even after he was promoted to major general. By the end of February, delegates decided that the Continental Army's counteroffensive in New Jersey had made Philadelphia apparently secure for the time being. On February 27th, the delegates adjourned their Baltimore session and agreed to resume work in Philadelphia on March 5th, bringing the Baltimore session to an end. Next week, I will look at how the British military and political leadership debated strategic war plans and prepared for the 1777 fighting season. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, 
dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. This week, I want to say thank you to Mike Hager as a member of the show's Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. This is the highest level I have set up on Patreon, and I very much appreciate the generosity of folks like Mike who help cover the costs of producing the show each week. It's a great help to keep us moving forward. This week, we covered the time that Congress spent in Baltimore in late 1776 and early 1777 when they feared the British might capture Philadelphia. Although the British did not take Philadelphia at this time, Congress did prove that it could continue to operate regardless of what cities the British might be able to capture. The Baltimore session was a fairly productive one. Congress churned out a great many generals in this session, an optimistic Congress had authorized General Washington to enlist 75,000 soldiers in his army. Now, that never came close to happening. The Continental Army never had more than 50,000 soldiers at one time, and even those numbers were later in the war. You may have seen statistics in places that the Army once reached 80,000 soldiers, but that number is combining Continental forces as well as state and militia forces and even that combined estimate seems rather high to me. In any event, to plan for this much larger army that Congress hoped for, they began promoting generals to command the army. But when the large army did not manifest, they really had more generals than they knew what to do with. And this problem was only exacerbated a few months later, when they started getting shiploads of French officers, whom Silas Dean, the agent in France, had promised could become generals in the Continental Army. I'll talk about that issue in a future episode. But the excess of generals did become a real problem. Now, none of the nine men who received promotion to Brigadier General in February 1777 ever made it past that to Major General. In fact, no American officer got promoted to Major General for the remainder of the war unless he was already a brigadier by the end of 1776. Of the five men who received promotions to major general in February of 77, uh, General Stephen would be cashiered within a year for drunkenness during battle, Mifflin would resign after about two years amidst charges of embezzlement, St. Clair would be court-martialed for abandoning Fort Ticonderoga and never given another important command during the war, Lincoln would command the largest continental loss of the war at Charleston near the end of the war. Only William Alexander, 
also known as Lord Sterling, would have a fairly impressive and relatively unblemished record from that class. Sadly for Lord Sterling, he would die of natural causes near the end of the war and get to play no role in the post-war creation of the United States. I also mentioned in passing in this episode that Vermont declared its independence during the time while Congress was meeting in Baltimore. I really haven't given it much attention because the nation as a whole wasn't paying much attention at the time. New York was already one of the most loyalist-leaning states during the war. Doing anything to annoy New Yorkers, like taking a huge chunk of their state away from them, could possibly result in New York moving back to the Loyalist camp. Just imagine what would have happened if New Yorkers had turned out to support the Burgoyne campaign and see history go in a very different direction. So I think it was wise that Congress chose to ignore the whole thing and let the Vermont issue sit in limbo until after the war, and even after until the U.S. was formed under the Constitution. Because it was ignored, the issue of Vermont's independence and its founding is an issue that probably deserves more attention. If you would like to learn more, the book I'm recommending this week is called Moses Robinson and the Founding of Vermont by Robert Mello. Moses Robinson is probably another one of those important people you've never heard of, at least if you live outside of Vermont. He was, however, instrumental in the founding of Vermont and also led Vermont as governor when it became the 14th state. The book, which is written by Judge Robert Mello and published by the Vermont Historical Society in 2014, is an interesting look both at Robinson's life and also the turbulent years that Vermont struggled for recognition. It covers lots of interesting facts, like the time Vermont spent as an independent republic, even though no other country recognized it as such that it was the first state to outlaw slavery before any of the other original 13 states, and that Vermonters even debated rejoining the British Empire rather than being forced to become part of New York again. At over 400 pages, the book is quite thorough and an interesting read. Also this week, I talked about the political infighting over the running of the Medical Corps for the Army. I mentioned that John Morgan, whom Congress ousted in January 1777, wrote a book justifying his tenure and covering the political machinations surrounding his removal. The book is obviously biased and one-sided, but it gives a great primary source insight into the political wrangling of the time. If you're interested in taking a look at the book, it's available on archive.org as a free ebook and is my online recommendation of the week. The book is called A Vindication of His Public Character in the Station of Director General of the Military Hospitals and Physician-in-Chief to the American Army by John Morgan. You can look it up on archive.org or just use the link that I've provided on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.